Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hey, all you gearheads and car fiends, welcome to Driven Radio Show, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield, here with my co-host and engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Groves. That's me. We are coming to you from the Driven Radio Studios, which is thankfully hidden in the bowels of our house. Oh my God, it's so hot outside. It's nice and cold, and there's a fan, and yeah, it's about 15 degrees colder down here than upstairs. This Kansas just became a griddle. Yeah, well, this is where we keep the ice cream. It's nice and cool down here. That's why I'm here. Way too stinking hot. Here's the bad thing. Uh, I've checked three or four different weather channels for tomorrow. For tomorrow now, the low's 98. Wow. The high was the high one was 104. Wow. And I know we're whining because our friends in Texas are all like, really? Really? Well, Cry yeah, me you know, a freaking river. Donald Bond, who we had on a few weeks back, has been posting stuff on Facebook about how you could just fry eggs on your dashboard. Yeah. So, <laughs> Donald, we feel for you, but not really that much. Yeah. <laughs> Much like <laughs> politics, weather's very local. Yeah. It's all it's all what's right around it's you. all about us. Uh, so for the next few days, I'm just going to hide down here. I'm not even going to go to my office anymore. It's warm upstairs. Smart. Our special guest this week is Nick Ellis, Executive Director of the RPM Foundation. Nick formerly owned a restoration and sales shop with an emphasis on pre-war Fords and Mercuries. He has traveled the world in search of specific parts for restoration, and Nick believes that collector vehicles are meant to be driven and enjoyed. You damn straight they are. Yeah. (laughs) And he's thrilled to be a part of ensuring that the next generation of craftspeople are there to keep those rolling works of art on the road. He joined the RPM Foundation in 2018 and assumed the executive director position in 2021. Nick, welcome to Driven Radio Show. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. We uh, we had to juggle schedules a little bit to get you on, but we're happy to have you. Yeah. And many of us are big fans of the RPM Foundation and its mission. But for those who are not familiar with it, can you give us a quick thumbnail of what the foundation is and what it does and why it was founded? Yeah, so the RPM Foundation is a nonprofit organization. We support careers in vehicle restoration and preservation. And we do this a number of different ways. We have grant funding in the form of scholarships, uh, apprenticeship funding, internships. We fund high school level um, uh, restoration projects. We help start up restoration programs. We do outreach programs where we will bring a group of students to a vintage car repair shop. We'll bring them to a uh, vintage car race. We'll bring them to a collector car auction and just kind of give them uh, a peephole into what the industry is like and what the career possibilities are. And um, most recently, we've been doing workforce development programs, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But we were founded to combat the skilled trade shortage that's plaguing the restoration industry right now. So uh, we've been around in different forms over the years. We were actually started by Haggerty as the Collectors Foundation back in 2005. And we've uh, since separated from them and we've gone through a couple of different name changes and we were rebranded to the RPM Foundation in 2015. So what has caused the shortage of competent skilled labor? Yeah, that's a great question. You guys are way too uh, young and spry to remember the 70s, but... uh, (laughs) By in, your in the seventies, <laughs> I still am the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, Mark collects Kragers he has no car to put on. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Someday. Well, the, the 1970s is when the big push towards that everybody goes to a four-year college and everybody gets their bachelor's degree. That was really pushed back then, and that's when I don't think you really started to see the um, – the the shop programs disappear then you were you were definitely seeing students get kind of pushed into the shop programs when they were like the trouble kids and you know there's that stigma of you know the shop classes for the for the kids who are underperforming yep. and we um you know it's it's an interesting thing to talk to the shop teachers when and and bring that point up because during my first year with the foundation I heard a really terrific above and beyond shop teachers say that these kids are just as smart as the kids that excel in math or science. You know, they're just tactile learners. They just learn a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, all of those factors pushed the skilled trades to the side, really emphasized four-year college degree. And you started to see skilled trades atrophy in the United States. So the fallout from that is this basically skipped an entire generation. I'm 52 years old. You don't see a lot of people my age owning restoration shops. They're either you know in their 70s or they're in their 30s. Yeah. So we've got this big gap and we don't have that next generation coming in to take the place of the people who are aging out of the industry. So that's one of the things that the foundation is here to combat. I'm really happy that a guy who's younger than us says that we're too young to remember stuff. I appreciate that greatly. It made me giggle. Charming, Nick. Charming. Keep it coming, buddy. I am noticing uh, as you're speaking about craftsmanship and skilled labor and everything, I'm looking in the background at the trim work around the room you're sitting in and the, the great crown molding and the moldings around the doors and the, and, and it's quite lovely it's very very pretty thank you uh it's actually an apartment i'm in a one-bedroom apartment and that kind of leads into my uh dumbest uh car story for later on uh, (laughs) oh my god yeah (laughs) you'll see what i mean in a minute but yeah i love i love stuff like this the old old style craftsman um uh bungalows and architecture like that i mean you don't see you don't see those skilled trades on well, the mission style chair today. and table. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, my son's 23 and he's a plumber and it's uh, it's really surprising talking to him. He goes back to his high school and visits sometimes and they had a, an advanced plumbing trades uh, um, part of the school. It's called the 21st century program, which was great for, for helping kids learn a skill as they became young adults and stepped out, especially for the ones who had no plans on going to college. It's just really strange that even that has waned a bit when you're talking about how things have kind of changed and altered and it's, there's not that focus. And I'm like, Oh my God, I, I wish to hell and back that I had not been such a, a thespian snobby redneck as a kid (laughs) and had instead at least taken a shop class to learn how to fix cars. I love them so much, but I can screw one up in a heartbeat. You really got to go back (laughs) and examine that phrase you just used thespian snobby 
redneck. Oh, dude, yeah. I think that's the first time those words have ever been arranged in that order. It was a heady mix of confusion (laughs) with a 1955 Plymouth. So, you know, you may do. (laughs) Mark performing in Branson, Missouri, Shakespeare in the dark. Yeah. (laughs) Othello and the Bild Knobbers. That's what I was all about. Yeah. So how is the foundation funded? We are 100% donor funded. It's a mixture of corporate donors, private donors. We have uh, other foundations and organizations that give to us. But yeah, every dollar that we give to our programs comes from uh, people who support us and are passionate about what we're doing. How much money has the foundation donated toward restoration and preservation groups? We have over the years given over $3.5 million in grant funding. and. I, it, it's had, um, I think, a terrific effect on the industry. We've been able to support young people who otherwise would not have been able to attend a post-secondary training program and how to restore and preserve these vehicles. We do support of the high school level programs. I mentioned that you know those shop programs are disappearing, and yeah. I like to believe that we've had a hand in keeping the good ones around uh, for a little bit longer. You know, when you've got a program that maybe is not attracting as many students as it used to, one of the great th- ways to get young people interested in that is somebody donates a 65 Mustang and the, the students take to restoring that car. So RPM will come in with grant funding to assist that high school shop with buying the parts and materials they need to restore that car and in a lot of ways keep that program popular and keep it alive. How have the donations changed the restoration industry? What have you seen from this? Well, I I like to believe that we we're seeing more people get into this now than we did pre RPM. Um, we're also trying to elevate the profile of uh, the profession through um, telling stories about people who go into this industry and are pursuing their dream and doing what they love every day. So I. I think that the industry is a little healthier than it would have been if it hadn't been for us, but there's still certainly a lot of work to be done. How did you come to join the foundation? Yeah, I had kind of a a strange journey to the foundation. I, I was one of those kids that, you know, would have been in shop class if there had been a shop class. I struggled very, uh, very hard in school. I, um, Barely made it through high school, and I went to college because it was the thing to do, but I wasn't really terribly motivated about anything. I actually went for radio and television. I wanted to do uh, what you guys are doing before I realized I had no talent for it. No. <laughs> All you need is a couple of one-liners and a beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I'd known that 20 years, where were you 30 I'm years sorry, ago? sorry. I should have talked to you then. <laughs> That's how I get by. Mark actually knows how to work this crap. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I studied radio and television because I liked working on the equipment. I liked working with my hands, and that was the closest thing that I could get into at a college-level program. So after college, I kind of went from job to job. I settled on IT. I I worked in computers, again, because I liked having my hands on machines. And I was laid off in the economic downturn of 2007. And my father is where I got the car bug from. So he had started a small operation where he would buy cars at an auction and work on it himself and then turn around and sell them. And 
I came on just because I had nothing better to do. And I would work in the shop with them and really turned out to have a knack for it and ended up staying and working with them for seven years. And then he retired and I, you know, I'm not married and I don't have kids. So this was a small operation. It was just me and my dad. So if my dad retired, I was living by myself and every day going to the shop by myself and I would not see another human being for days at a time. And I'm like, I'm going to become a really strange person <laughs> if I keep doing this. Become? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I lined you right up. Sorry, you, yeah. you set it up on the tea. I couldn't help it. That was a little hanging fruit. <laughs> so yeah, I, I started looking for what I could do next and I wanted to do something um, involved in this industry, but I wanted to do something where I was helping people and being around other people. So the foundation at the time was looking for somebody to manage their grants program. And um, I was very fortunate in that I had zero experience at a nonprofit. I had no experience you know, with grants or, or education, uh, but they took a chance on me and they gave me the job and I absolutely loved it. I took a a pretty significant pay cut to take the job, but it's been the best job I've ever had. I absolutely love it. So after managing their grants program for a while, you became the executive director and you had a list of tasks that you wanted to address when you did. What were some of the first things you did? Yeah. So all of our storytelling up until that point had been pretty much anecdotal. You know, you would talk to restoration shop owners who would talk about how they can't find somebody to come and work in their shop. And uh, you'd talk to uh, high school shop teachers saying, you know, talking about the difficulties they had keeping their programs going, but we never had any really hard data to support that. So I put into an, I put into effect uh, an industry research study where we surveyed more than 10% of the estimated 3,000 restoration shops that are out there across the country. And we came back with hard data about what's actually, what the challenges are that are actually facing the industry. So we found out this is, you know, we got a lot of data out of that, but the most startling number that we came back with was that there are about 3,000 restoration shops, 62% of them report that they need at least one new person. Oh, yeah. So that's, Absolutely. that's about an 1800 worker need. Good Lord. So, yeah. So our, our scholarship and grant funding is really aimed towards the post-secondary system. And that's a funnel leading to a pretty sharp tip. I mean, you've got McPherson college, which is an outstanding program. You've got oh, yeah. uh, Pennsylvania college of technology, another great program. Add up all of those post-secondary programs. There's less than a hundred students coming out of those programs per oh, year. Yeah. You guys had Sean Robinson on just a couple of weeks ago. He's one of my favorite people. He's one of maybe a hundred kids that came out of programs wow. like that that year. So if you've got an 1800 worker need, you're not going to fill it with a hundred students coming out of these programs every year. So my big push in coming into the job as executive director was to move us into developing the apprenticeship program. And I, you know, I can go on and on about the apprenticeship program. I know I, I want to talk about that a little bit later, but that was a big shift for us. We've always been um, a grant giving organization and an outreach program organization. We've never done workforce development. So that was kind of a big move for us to move into that direction. Now, I just want to reiter reiterate here. 
that you're talking about, uh, you know, a thousand some jobs available for restoration. We're not talking about going and being a, you know, a, a grease, a grease monkey, uh, who I love, by the way, down at Jiffy Lube. Those guys always take care of me. Love you. But uh, uh, these are like you're getting neck deep into the into the really old vehicles and doing the real work of yeah. restoration. Oh, yeah. my God. But McPherson. A vastly, vastly different occupation than automotive technology and collision repair. Yeah. Uh, the, the, it's night and day when you really think about it. And I can speak firsthand from McPherson, well, you know, from eons ago when I graduated. Uh, their program is full every year. Yeah. They've got a waiting list. Yeah. And I think maybe 40 graduates or thereabouts per year. But also consider the work they're doing. Yeah. They're taking a car to Pebble this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a rather stunning Mercedes. Yeah. And, and it would have to be to even be considered. So it's, yeah, it's it's a level of craftsmanship that you don't find just everywhere. And if you've got 1,800 jobs open, probably close to closer to 2,000 with what Nick's talking about, and you got 40 from McPherson, and I'm not sure how many come out of Pentec, and there aren't many schools around that offer this kind of stuff. McPherson, to the best of my knowledge, is the only one that's four-year accredited degree. Man, where are you going to find these people? Yeah. Yeah. And, and think about the dynamic of what happens when you have a small number of students coming out into this 1800 worker need workforce. You've got the absolute top level shops all fighting over these recent graduates. And then the shops that do cars that you know are more for people getting into this hobby for the first time. You know, the, I'm, I'm a big Ford guy. Who's going to be restoring 49 Fords? when the shops that do that kind of work can't get access to these people who are coming out of these programs. Yeah. So the last thing we want is for this to become an increasingly elite hobby. We want it to be accessible. So we want those shops that service the cars that are accessible to the, the everyman to remain and to thrive. But you're not finding too many shops that have lots of younger workers. The guys who no. are restoring 40, who are restoring 49 Fords now, are probably close to retirement age or beyond. Yes. They're guys who have done it for years and years. What is it you love most about your job? I love everything about it, to be honest. But uh, I, I mentioned um, you actually I see other people. <laughs> I, I do see other people. They let me out of my cage every now and then, and they let me talk to people. I mentioned uh, you know struggling in in high school, and when you have that kind of image of yourself having already gone through that you kind of tend to think of yourself as maybe not a particularly smart person and maybe that you don't have a whole lot to offer the next generation. And, you know, going through that experience of being a poor student in high school and, and not such a, not much better student in college and now being in the position that I'm in and with the ability to help, people in that position. It's, it's, it's an incredibly rewarding thing to be talking to somebody who might be thinking that way about themselves, might be confused about what their career path is going to be, and to be able to offer them options and offer them advice and, and uh, life experiences that I've been through. The, I never expected to be somebody who mentored the next generation. And that's been the most surprising part of this job. And it's been 
by far the most fulfilling part of it. I love working with the young people and, and helping them get established in this industry. Nice. Well, fortunately, they don't ask to see your transcript when you're trying to. Help them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't feel bad about your educational history. I got out of high school on a plea bargain and, uh, and, and, and never finished college. And I've become a perfectly mediocre auto journalist. So stunningly, I would say oh, stunningly, supremely. You can do it. Anybody can do it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm uh I may not be good but I'm prolific. I crank it out. <laughs> the foundation has introduced the Restorers Award at Select Concours. Uh how did you go about determining the standards for that selection and how did you get the concours to participate in it? Yeah, so the Restorers Award is part of that um that move to elevate the profile of this particular skilled trade. And the comparison that I use when I talk about this is if you've got somebody who went through music school and decides that they want to be a musical artist and they you know, work in a coffee house during the week and they live in a crummy studio apartment, they struggle and slave away to just have those moments on the weekend that they can get up on stage and strum their guitar and have people listen to their music. That's celebrated that you know, people get that like they understand that you're you're doing what you love and you're being celebrated for what you love. Why isn't this celebrated as an art form? Why are the people who can take a fender and hammer it perfectly smooth or you know customize a fender and make it look like this is the way the car was always intended to look? Why is that not celebrated as an art form? And it's going to sound like I'm kind of knocking the people who bring their cars to the Concord. I'm absolutely not. I think it takes a ton of, um, I think it takes a ton of perseverance and belief in the vehicle to make the investment to bring it up to that level of showmanship that you see at those concours. Those people absolutely deserve the recognition for bringing that car to the Concord, but they wouldn't have gotten there without the person who gets their hands dirty and actually does the work on that car. So we wanted to recognize the people who do that hands-on work. And we went at it from the exhibitors at the Concord. We asked the exhibitors to nominate the people who restored their vehicle. And we go through those nominations and we look for not just the ones that are amazing restorers. We look for the ones that have also taken a, an interest in the next generation and are actively working to pass those skills on. So giving that award at the Concord is our kind of salute to the people who are not only artists in their own right, but are also engaging in the next generation and getting them trained up and, and ready to take over. Which concours did you get to participate? Right now, we have it at the Hilton Head Island Concord. They were the first ones to carry it, and they've been a terrific partner for us. Uh, we're heading into our third year of having it uh, at, at that one, and we also have it at the Fort Lauderdale Concord. Um, we're talking to several other concours about bringing it. Um, we're hoping that it spreads and gets into other shows, and that there are people listening to this who are involved with the Concord who would like to bring the Restorers Award to the Concord. Please reach out. We'd love to work with you. 
You know, that's a that's a great thing, because, uh, you know, you think of the Academy Awards and you see all of these actors and actresses, all the famous people go up. But when do the techies get their time to shine? They don't. Well, and, they, uh, I'm so glad to uh, that's uh, an, to an awards, uh, an awards presentation that they don't. Well, that's when the commercials are on. <laughs> yeah. well, you, you know, what's you know, what's so funny about you making that that um, comparison? I never made that comparison before. And the organization that sponsors this award is Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus is a alternative fuel company that is has developed a process for pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and reprocessing it back into liquid fuel. So it's zero net carbon gasoline. I've read super, about super that. Super, cool stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Amanda Martinez, who is the uh, chief creative officer for Prometheus, she and I were talking about, you know, how do we get the Restorers Award into in, in front of more concourse? And she says, you know, have, having the Restorers Award is like adding the best director category because your best picture goes to the producers. That's the people who put up the money and made yeah. the made the movie happen. But it wouldn't be a best picture without the director. Yeah. And I thought that was such an apt and and it's right after she made that that um comparison that you said that. So do you have my phone tapped? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not uh, for me to know you. You to find out. But stop ordering those pizzas, man, because it's really going to hit your heart. How dare you? <laughs> you got to know we're not that competent. <laughs> I mean, look at me. <laughs> hey, 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 hey! I resemble that remark. You just came back from competing in the great race. Please tell us a little bit about the foundation's involvement with the great race and what you went through this year. Nobody gets through that without having some kind of an incident. How did you do? (laughs) Yeah. So I love the great race. If you're not familiar, this is a time speed distance rally. Your car has to be 1974 or earlier. You travel at least 2000 miles. This year was almost 2,500 miles across several different states. We started I know where we can in, find some cars. We're going. Yeah. <laughs> we started in um, St. Augustine, Florida, and finished in Colorado Springs. Wow. And within the great race, there's a student division called the X-Cup. This is open to schools or uh, museums or other nonprofit organizations that want to stand up a student team. And the entry fee, which is normally $6,000 to enter the race, that's waived for all the X-Cup teams. And then on top of the fee being waived, you receive $2,500 in grant funding to assist you with the expenses of the race. RPM's involvement is we oversee the fundraising for this. We recruit new X-Cup teams. We administer those funds. And in exchange for us doing that work, we're allowed an X-Cup team of our own in the race. So last year, we had an all-female team driving a 66 Mustang. Nice. Uh, we went from Rhode Island to North Dakota, and that was just a phenomenal team, awesome team, great experience. Um, this year, two of our navigators from that team came back as drivers for this team, and we got two new navigators, 17-year-old navigators, uh, Noah Jackson and Betty Parrish. Our drivers were Kinsey Wilson and Olivia Gaggio. And we drove a 65 Corvair in this year's race. Yeah. Yeah. And my favorite, my favorite story about this year's race last year, it was 
that we were having fuel delivery problems on the Mustang and we rebuilt the carburetor in the parking lot of one of the hotels at 10 o'clock at night. And when, when we're doing this, I want to make sure it's not me doing all the work on the car and the kids just kind of standing by and watching. I want them to have their hands on and, yeah. and actually be doing the work on the cars. So I stood back. I let them do all the work. And, you know, it's arguable that rebuilding a carburetor is one of the most daunting tasks on, on these cars. They had never done this before. They'd never even really worked on any kind of a carbureted vehicle before. But they stripped that thing down. They soaked it. They put it back together with new gaskets, put it on. The car fired right up. And they had been getting kind of frustrated with the car not performing the way they expected it to. And I said, 20 years from now, you're not going to tell the story about the day that nothing went wrong on the race. You're going to tell the story <laughs> about rebuilding the carburetor in the parking lot. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so this year, uh, we were the only Corvair in the whole race. And one of the Corvair clubs posted a picture of our car on their Facebook page. So another Corvair club, the Mid-Continent Corvair Club in Wichita, Kansas, mm -hmm. came out to visit us. Uh, the, the VP of the, uh, of the club came out because he saw the Facebook post. It had been 108 degrees that day. The team was wiped out and sweaty. We get there and he's there and he, you know, he meets the team and we're introducing ourselves. And he says, well, how's the car running? And they said, well, it's pulling a lot to the right under hard braking. And I said, well, I wonder if one of the brake hoses could be swollen. I think we're going to switch that out in the parking lot tonight. And he goes, do you want some help? So he goes back to the club and gets a bunch of his buddies. And that night, 10 o'clock at night, a 64 Corvair convertible pulls up and a, a, a Corvair van pulls up and all these guys get out. And again, nobody was hands on the car. They all just came with their expertise and told our team members how to replace the brake hoses, pull the drums off, balance the drums and bleed the brakes. And we were back up on the road by one in the morning. And it's the same thing. I know that they all just, they were tired and they were hot and they wanted to go to sleep, but that's, that's the night they're going to talk about 20 years from now. Yep. It yeah. absolutely will be. Uh, what is the Design Without Limits competition? Yeah, so I mentioned Prometheus before. Prometheus also sponsors this competition. So when you think about the concept of a, a zero net carbon gasoline, uh, the, the founder of Prometheus, Rob McGinnis, was on a podcast and he was talking about the design implications that might come from having a zero net carbon gasoline. So could we get to a point where we're not necessarily building a car specifically for efficiency and emissions. Now that we've got zero net carbon gasoline, can we go back to those days from the 50s and 60s when we were building a car for you know the, the kind of audacity of it and the joy of driving? So we posed that question to a high school level industrial design program in Miami and asked them, all those students to design their dream car to take all the restrictions off. It can be, you know, big, huge lumbering thing, or it can be a, you know, like a super powered uh, race car. It can be any kind of car you can imagine. And we got some amazing designs from them. We narrowed that down to four different finalists and we invited those four finalists to the motor car cavalcade, which takes place in Miami and exhibited their, drawings and these big framed um, portraits 
and we had actual industry professionals come in, uh, you know, automotive designers come in and evaluate their designs and choose a winner. And the winner received scholarship funding to uh, continue her education. Very cool. Yeah. Man, that's one of those times that you want Jonathan Ward from Icon 4x4 uh-huh. to come in and, and do a little, <laughs> uh, you know, do a little help with them, talk about it. Or Chip Foose. If you could get Chip yes. to come yeah. in and go, hey, yes. your design there, yeah. But Mark has in his head that somebody's going to come up with a twin for a 70 Chrysler 300 uh, <laughs> gold and white pace hearse, hearse pace car. I just wanted to have gold wing doors. <laughs> and crackers. Yeah. There, there were some wild concepts. It was really neat to see them just kind of unleash their imagination and do whatever they want on those cars. Okay. Now, tell us about the Foundation's apprenticeship program. This is really where I see the future of the RPM Foundation. Um, and when we're building a program like this, we want to make sure I pointed out that difference between automotive technology, now automotive technology and collision repair and vehicle restoration and preservation. And the, the comparison that I make is when you're doing automotive technology, let's say you go to work in a Ford dealership, you've basically been trained on about 10 years worth of Ford. And that is what you specialize in. But if you work in a vehicle restoration shop, especially if it's not one that is, is specializing in every any particular marker era, any kind of car from within 100 years can come through that door at any time. So yeah. you have to be familiar with all different kinds of engine design and suspension design and you know uh, fuel delivery systems you have to be disciplined enough to do your research on those vehicles before you dig into an engine and a technology that you've never seen before and you might not understand so there's so much more to this than i think most people realize you are just as much of a researcher and an historian you have to document the work that you're doing on the car very, very meticulously because you're becoming a part of that car's history when you're working on that car, especially if the car has any sort of historical significance to it. You've got to make sure that the work that you're doing is recorded and preserved for generations to come. You're serving as a steward to these cars. So we're not just training young people to sand a fender or turn a wrench. We're training them to serve as advocates of these vehicles and approach it in a, a philosophical, systematic way to do what's best for the vehicle and, and make sure that they're restoring it to the highest possible standards. So the apprenticeship program is something that we're developing very, very carefully. We're making sure that our curriculum includes those hands-on tasks, but also that cerebral philosophical side to what this industry really is. Now, that sounds kind of heady. Don't you just get most of your parts from J.C. Whitney? Well, that's, yeah, I didn't want to say that. But. <laughs> oh, God, you would. <laughs> wow. That, I, I, I'm actually blown away by the whole RPM Foundation, man. I mean, this is just, this is great stuff, and it's it's so cool to see, uh, you know, you infecting young people and uh, giving them that first hit of, oh, man, being around old cars is cool and getting them all uh, all hung up on them. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for comparing it to the neighborhood drug dealer, by the way. You know. <laughs> I appreciate that. Similes and metaphors, it's why I live. 
<laughs> All right, Nick, now you're in the crosshairs. What is the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? So I was, um, I was 12 years old when Risky Business came out. So the, you know, the Porsche 928, pretty mm-hmm. polarizing car. You either love that car or you hate it. I love it. I've always wanted one and I've been searching for a manual transmission one for a long, long time. Three or maybe even four years ago, I find one on Facebook Marketplace. You know how Island weird Chicago. those things are. Oh, that's the thing. That's this is why this is a dumb story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found one on Facebook Marketplace uh, that has been sitting for a long time. So that's you know that's always something that you want to do in a Porsche. Then I reach out and ask about it and it's in the pictures it's sitting in this gravel parking lot and there's these trees in the background and there's a couple of other old cars around it so i reach out and i ask about it it's a black one with a white interior and a five speed guy never responds i think i was immediately i think i reviewed this car for a sports car market a couple years back (laughs) probably i can tell you where it ended up so I, I, you know, that's probably for the best. The last thing I need. I, I uh, attract projects. I'm like the crazy cat person of projects. <laughs> they, I feel like they all, they need me. They need me to rescue them and take them home and take good care of them. So Mark has I, a I new kitten at home other... right now. As a matter of fact, I, I know this. We're going to be friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, a year goes by and it pops up on Marketplace again. So I reach out again and again, no reply. Okay, that's fine. That's for the best. I should not buy this car. It's the last thing I need is to get this car. This is a hint and a half for you. (laughs) (laughs) I start dating my girlfriend and we started dating right at the beginning of COVID. So like we went on a couple of dates and then all of a sudden all the restaurants are shut down. You can't go out anymore. So she says, do you want to come over and I'll, I'll make dinner. I said, well, great. Sure. So she gives me directions to her place. I pull in to her apartment building and it's a gravel parking lot and there's a bunch of trees and a bunch of old cars and there's the Porsche. No way. <laughs> so you never even Chicago. went up to her apartment, did you? <laughs> no, no. That's, well, here's you the never thing. made it. <laughs> this, is, this is date three where I'm supposed to be happy to see her, but I come running up the stairs. And I'm like, who? Is the person who owns the car shop? You must take me to this person immediately. She's like, "Yeah, it's nice to see you, moron." Flowers, what? <laughs> Your fantastic crop and wagon. So she introduces me to the guy who owns it, and we haggle back and forth, and he won't budge on the price. But that, that's fine. That's fine. I leave it alone. But now, in the back of my head, this car is meant to be. We are meant to be together. So we go on vacation. I lose my glasses while we're on vacation. I come back from vacation. I go to the eye doctor to get my eyes checked and he sees me trying to fill out the form and I'm sticking the, you know, the the paperwork of, you know, two feet out in front of me. And he goes, you know, you're going to need bifocals too. And the midlife crisis that was supposed to hit me like 10 years ago, all of a sudden, is over me like a wave and I go no I don't I'm going to buy a Porsche <laughs> get the glasses first Nick <laughs> please get the glasses first <laughs> did you did you, know you get the Porsche yeah, yeah, I went, I Nick's going to wind up with crap wagon braille yeah, yeah. 
Trust me. So we got to know the end of this love story because this was uh, meant to be, you know, let it go. And if it comes back to you, it was it's love. Uh, How long did you own it? And how awful was it to own? Uh, My question is, do either of you want to purchase the 1982 (laughs) Porsche 928? I have. I've done basically nothing on the car because it is the clutch costs more than I spent on the car. Mm -hmm. It's, It's the most ridiculously expensive car that I've ever I've ever owned to work on, and like I said, I right I'm living in a one bedroom apartment right now. I've got it in like a borrowed. Why didn't you call me? I could have told you all this. <laughs> <laughs> For the love of God, where were you? This was three years. Where were you three years ago? Oh my God, that's too. Funny. I have a really good friend who's also been a guest on the show several times, named John Fakara. And John is Dr. Frankenstein to 928s. He's got really? three or four of them right now. And yeah. he's he's trying to coalesce them into one good car. And he's getting there. He's getting it done. Um, so Does he want a fifth one? Yeah. <laughs> we may be able to work this out. Ooh, there may be some I'm there. super negotiable. <laughs> so you never thought of like an SB swap or anything like that? Maybe you make I, it a four by four. Of, I thought of you got to get a hold everything. of Renegade Motor Works. Yeah, and, and they'll do uh, Chevy LS swaps on nine twenty eight. Yeah. Okay, here's what you do: you get one of your young people involved, and then the RPM Foundation can help with the uh, uh, rehabilitation of the vehicle. You see, you I think see? that's called embezzlement. <laughs> no, that's called a win-win. Is what it is. <laughs> It's thinking that, outside the box. Yeah, that's called financial fackery, and the IRS <laughs> would like to have a word with you. Yeah, my phone's I, I do like my job. The yeah. new password is gang audit. <laughs> I bought a 56 Plymouth one time. Oh, no. I got it for $300 and a really crappy pistol. And uh, uh, you should have kept the pistol. Oh, my God, I should have. Because that thing, uh, you know, I thought the floorboards were solid until I pulled up the rubber mat. And uh, and it was just cheesecloth. Oh, it's okay. He replaced them with a stop sign. Yeah. I had I had a 67 Firebird convertible <laughs> that had a stop sign bolted into the floor after I pulled up all the all the carpets. That's not a new idea. <laughs> but, yeah, I, well, my brother had one of those, to too. <laughs> it was a 57 Chevy and you could do the Flintstone thing in the passenger side, you know, uh, yeah. footwell. But, uh, yeah, he dropped the stop sign down in there and you survived. Yeah. Oh, for the love of God. <laughs> whatever's, but, whatever's lying around the shop. Before this gets any worse, we've been speaking with Nick Ellis, Executive Director of the RPM Foundation. Nick, can you take a minute and tell us where we can find you and the RPM Foundation online and on social media? Yes, you can find us online at www.rpm.foundation. You can find us on social media. Just you know, look up the RPM Foundation on Facebook and Instagram. We're also on TikTok if you are um, under 15 years old, I suppose. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, uh, email us at info at rpm.foundation. Nick, thank you so very much, and thanks for being with us on Driven Radio. This has been an absolute blast, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. That was fun. Uh, what a nice dude. Yeah, he I mean, is. He put up with my crap so well. <laughs> he didn't once point at me and go, you stupid. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, Nick Ellis, truly nice guy. Yeah. And, and it sounds like he's trying to do what we've been preaching for so long, just trying to preserve our history and the cars. And, you know, that 
I am I'm a little tingly about the Prometheus fuels idea because Are you if sure we it's can get that, that well it, it, you did say Craigert but uh <laughs> if they, if they really can make zero carbon and and make it to where we're not it doesn't have to all be pushed electric. Yeah, I don't have to quit driving my Corvette. And they can design cars again instead and, of looking and, like melted and, scoops of ice cream. And I could buy a lot more Corvettes. Oh, dude, <laughs> I, I I find that very exciting. I I want I want to dig further more in Corvettes. Yeah, me too. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Subtle no, but I, effective. I, I want to I want to talk to Prometheus and I want to hear yeah. about what they're doing. It's yeah, absolutely dude, yeah. cool. Nick, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And on LinkedIn as the Driven Radio Show podcast. Because somebody else had Driven Radio Show. <laughs> You're still mad. have nothing about cars. <laughs> what You're, the hell? You are still angry. <laughs> I'm never not going to be upset about that. I'm never not going to be bothered by that. You can also find us anywhere, find podcasts or heard, because we are like Chicken Man, baby. We are everywhere. everywhere. I am Brett Hatfield from Mark L. Groves. Yo. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio. Driven Radio.